This conversation touches on bereavement, death, that kind of thing. And before the episode starts, I'm going to play you a clip from my other podcast, The Family Tree. I do recommend people listen to that show from the first episode onwards. Skip the next couple of minutes if you haven't done that, because this trailer has spoilers. And you can find out all about the show and more on thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. You knocked on the door and I have, I have simply opened it. Mark was, was taken over by a changeling. When I began making this show, I thought that I was making a human interest piece about what it's like to be involved in a Twilight Zone-style mystery. I thought I'd end up either finding no answer or finding an explanation that was related to what we think of as real. But that's not what happened at all. Everything you do has some sort of consequence. This isn't a comfortable experience for me. I'm... Well, why are you doing that? But I feel like you can make a choice whether to transfer that or not. He knew that he wasn't really my dad. Well, there's obviously something weird going on. I don't know what's real. A lot of it's out there already. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, I get that. No, there's no changeling. I feel a bit like we're talking about it as though it's been resolved, and I don't know whether that's quite right. I feel like there's a lot more room for more things to be... Discuss. I think lots of people feel crazy, right? If we hold secrets or if we hold the truth from the world, it's going to get us a bunch. To treat it like any other information you might get, to try and understand what might be happening. You have to answer those questions because we can't pretend that that isn't happening. It's funny when people call people different. It's like different to what? Obviously, I wasn't expecting <laughs> this. Yeah kind of um, confession, I suppose. This is the personal versus what's happening in the much bigger changes, but you've got to be brave and you've got to you've got to lead from the front. You didn't mention this in the first time we were recording, so I think it's fair to say that you were keeping things back. I guess I was a bit cautious of what it was explained as to the rest of the world. They've both known this thing that they haven't talked to each other about. And I don't know how they've done that because it's such a big weight. I did find out why Mark's dead body was not the same body as the man who had left his family 15 years ago. But the answer I found is not the kind of answer that people believe. If you listen back to past episodes of The Family Tree, then I hope that you'll see why, even though it seems impossible, I've come to believe it. I don't know who you are. You're not Mark. No. No, I'm not. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. And help the family tree to grow by becoming a patron and helping to fund the show. How do you wrap up, essentially, the, the myths and lives of your parents? So you have the initial loss, the shocking, surprising loss. But then also, how do you begin to unpackage everything else? They die, you have a memorial, everybody else mourns. You have to box up their lives you have to think about their legacies. You have yeah. to decide what of their lives you want to retain in your life. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. So today we're getting even better acquainted 
with Liz. Hello, Liz. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And I think you were probably one of my first GBAs I ever recorded. Like, it was in the first week. Yeah, it was very early days. I think I'm episode four or episode five. Yeah, it was definitely in the first round of people that you approached about it, I think. Right, you went out early, but you also were recorded early. Yeah. Some, some people <laughs> were recorded early, but didn't go out for, for yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so pe- people may have heard your voice, but you were very early on. I mean, I don't know if I'll agree with myself back then. I hardly ever agree with myself from the first couple of years of getting better acquainted. Well, I agree with myself. That's an interesting question. I, I haven't listened back to it recently, so... Uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah. I could be just as unreliable as a narrator as you. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> and certainly our, our lives will be different. I mean, it's been five years, and there's been a lot of difference in, in your life <laughs> since then. I'm trying to remember back where you, were at, where you were at then. I guess you'd just come, like, you'd been in the UK for, like, a year or something? Mm, I'd done my master's, and then I think... I worked for a year in the not-for-profit sector, and then, then I worked for another year. I think it might have been my second year of working in London that we did it. And then in, I did a research assistantship, which then got me interested in sort of pursuing the family business, which I had been actively avoiding most of my life. Then I think I had to go back to the States for a visa vacation. And then, yeah, I came back to do the PhD, which I just finished, so... Right, so we're, we're talking, like, the That's day after, right? Yeah, the day after. You've submitted your PhD. Mm-hmm. The first question that I ask everybody is, <laughs> how do you know me? Uh, how do I know you now is a good question, because we knew each other through friends, and actually through our GBA is when I think we actually actually got to know each other yeah it was definitely one of the first examples i have of like a gba where i felt like at the end of it i knew the mm-hmm. person so much more deeply yeah, yeah, yeah. than at the beginning yeah. agreed but since then we've closely collaborated for for years for really years. years and actually this right about now marks the year anniversary of us no longer collaborating not right. not because of dave and i falling out but no. because of going different directions uh, creatively, intellectually. Go your intellectually. own way. <laughs> go, go your own way. Yeah, we're, we're breaking up. <laughs> if only we could make such a good album. Yeah. Yeah, because we collaborated for years on, on stand-up tragedy. Right, and so the first time I spoke to you, we won't have mentioned stand-up no. tragedy at all. Stand-up tragedy it didn't, didn't even exist. exist. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. When, I, when I came to make stand-up tragedy, which was a show that is, is currently on hiatus... But it's on podcast. It is on podcast. People can listen back to the entire back catalogue. Probably skip the first year uh, of oh, shows. I mean, there, was, there, nice were, there were some great performances. It's just badly recorded and strangely yeah. put together as a podcast. You, you but can I was listen learning, to my best yeah, ofs if, if you want to get some of the first. That's right. People <laughs> should totally listen to your best ofs, which is some of the... Yeah, they're, they're, those are really good shows just generally. Like, if you want to get more acquainted with me and Liz and our relationship with Standard <laughs> Tragedy... That's a, that's, those are shows to get because oh, yeah. it's not just her selection of picks it's also me, me and her talking about the process of yeah. working together yeah. and that was just after we'd stopped well, after we'd done the last show as well so it was sort of our, our farewell gift 
Right, it was. And then I did another one with Harv, who's the, the sound guy who's been working with me since the start, mm-hmm. too. And, yeah, like, when I first set, put together Stand Up Tragedy, which was happening at the Leicester Square Theatre in its first run, which I don't know how I managed to blag. which was remember, it's, yeah. It's great for the CV, but it wasn't the best venue. But for that show. I was looking for people to be stage manager. I reached out to my friend Zoe, who is also a person who I I trust to keep my shit together. And uh, she couldn't do all of them and you could do some of them. And so you sort of shared that role for a year. And then after that, you took it on pretty much full time. I mean, it was, your your job description was always (laughs) changing. Yeah, yeah, it sort of morphed. In In some periods, it was more collaborative producery type stuff and then in other periods it basically morphed as my constraints increased or decreased right poor old Dave was always doing the bulk of the things but yeah I mean that's the thing with being in a position where you can't pay people they have and they're volunteers and they're friends of yours that you just have to prioritize their lives and just take up the slack yeah which is why stand-up tragedy is on hiatus at the moment because there's only so much slack I can take up unless you want to pay Dave to do it oh that would be uh, most excellent (laughs) or you could you could even pay me to do well be complicated but you should definitely pay Dave to do it right you should well, I, you <laughs> and Dave and Harv get, Dave get, and Harv. you know p- pay me to produce it and I'll take on Liz and Harv uh, <laughs> absolutely where they're available um, they will be first first port of call for any any actual money um, since they put in so much blood sweat tears and, and all over bodily liquids no doubt to stand up tragedy big gross big gross yeah that was gross really but you know it's not inaccurate because I get very very car sick well, yeah, like, I mean, it's, yeah, so... And always got ill in Edinburgh, too. So, yeah, lots of, but this is too much information. This is probably too yeah. much information. But the, yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. You came on board, you did it in London, mm-hmm. and we took it to Edinburgh, what, three times? Three times. Three times. Um, and that was amazing and life-changing, like Edinburgh always is, and exhausting yep. and uh, impossible, and uh, yep, yep. like Edinburgh always is. All those things. It was my first experience of, one, going to the festival and certainly, two, taking anything to the festival, uh, which, for me, like, I had been doing theatre for years and years and years at school and community theatre and then at university, but I had sort of gone on hiatus personally from doing anything with it except fundraising, uh, really, until we did Stand Up Tragedy, and so that was a whole, like, re-emergence of that in Edinburgh as well, and then getting to go to the festival in and of itself... And it was a great community of folks, really. Right. It was a great sort of other side of myself and other sides of a lot of other people to explore. Because everybody has a day job is the other thing. So. Yeah, right. And, every, and, and also, I mean, over time as well, you, you eventually performed with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was great to see. Uh, I enjoyed your performances. <laughs> you enjoyed some of them. Oh, no, I think I, I, think I enjoyed them all. Um, and it was interesting to sort of, as my focus on academia uh, was emerging more, it then came out in those performances and, and the focus on my interests in those areas I yeah, think, came yeah, out yeah. in those. So it was sort of a, a, I just did, it for, in academic terms, my first ever lecture last week. So in some ways, the stand-up tragedies were little bits of preparation for some of that, I think, 
Right, and the last thing you did with us uh, was like you you produced kind of an hour of the yeah. uh, of the of the show where you, you talked about your relationship to the welfare state and to mm-hmm. academia and to uh, all of those sorts of things. Uh, and I inflicted it on two of my colleagues and one of my friends. That's right, you got those guys up too, <laughs> and it was one of my favourite kind of hours of the show because it was so. I mean, it's such a sad and tragic topic. Uh, now, mm-hmm. like it's like you were ta- you were talking about everyone's kind of hopes and dreams mm-hmm. being dashed as the political situation rolls like some kind of tank across in, in our a, in, brains. In a pre-Brexit, uh, right, right, world right, as well, and in the pre-Trump world, really. So it yeah, it wasn't even as bad then, yeah, and yeah. it still made me cry. Yeah, but you know, yeah. You, so you've and you've worked with me on in the, those kind of ways yeah. uh, over the over uh, that course of that kind of working relationship it's been great <laughs> at times for both of us and it's been hard at times for both yeah, of us yeah. um, it's hard to mix friendship and uh, work well and collaboration of- is it, it's incredibly difficult I've, I've found that in in academia as well it's hard to draw those lines between well in, in working life full stop it's hard to draw those lines between work and friendship and and also, like, figuring out whose responsibilities are whose and making sure right. that everything is fairly allocated. And well, we're both people who are inclined to take responsibility yeah. for, th- for more things than we should. But then we are physically capable of and, doing. And if you combine two people with that instinct together, both of whom know they shouldn't have that instinct, yeah. it's an interesting process of, like... Uh, yeah, both of us trying to help the other one out and, in fact, both of us making each other's work harder in some ways and easier in others yeah. at times. That's why Harv was such a perfect complement yeah. <laughs> to our duo as a trio. It was much more effective. Right, and over and time... a branding presence. Yeah, and over time we sort of, like, created this kind of... Uh, personal mythology mm-hmm. with you being the dad and me being the mum and half being the uncle because <laughs> like I'm I'm very much like Nurturing. let's make sure if everyone's okay and let's yeah. make sure and you're like no have strong rules for these performers <laughs> they should just like sort themselves out and you're right you're right and I'm right but uh, <laughs> thankfully between the two of us we we because it wasn't just you know when I'm talking about performers I'm not just talking about on stage I'm talking yeah. about we we took people out there we allowed people to uh, sleep in the house in the space, and yeah. we had shared keys and shared rules and I was the one who was more inclined to cater to everyone's whims <laughs> as you might put it uh, I would say you know to their mental uh, and emotional and spiritual uh, 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 well-being um, I have a tendency to sort of be like you're an adult like an adult yeah. I will support you in your adultness but I will expect you to act like an adult right and somewhere in between those two uh, two approaches is probably yeah, the healthy, yeah, yeah, yeah. The healthy approach um, which is probably half um, it probably is half yeah yeah um, and then by the end of our time at Stand Up Tragedy, we'd kind of evolved that mythology yeah. to kind of Star Trek base. Well, fundamentally, everything evolves to Star Trek yeah. at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Uh, with me being Bones and uh, Harv being Spock and you being Kirk. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't... a bit, like, they're, none I'm of them so, are perfect, except you know, I do think of Bones as being pretty perfect for my personality. I'm not an old country doctor. 
you're yeah. like you're, you're absolutely like bones yeah. in yeah. many ways because you're like ways. you're like kind of officially you know like him you're he's a doctor mm. he's supposed to be very kind of about facts and information and that's what you're about in theory same as in theory that's what he's mm. about but he's really about emotions mm. and feelings and you are too um which is not something you're fully comfortable with unlike bones he's got like a little bit more like acceptance of his emotional state. I have been more accepting at various times in my life. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And I'm certainly not meaning that Circumstance as a, 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 dependent. Yeah, no, 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 no. And no, I'm no, not no. meaning that as a criticism. I mean, and, you know, I think, you know, those three positions work in some ways. Mm. But I mean, it was... It so you're boldly leading us into the future. And yeah, I, hopefully I'm a little bit... Making contact with all the aliens. Cause I hope I'm less of a womanizer than, not what, yeah, than Kirk. I meant more of like... Some people might think different. You, you are good at networking in a certain sense, like on a very personal level. Like there's the difference, it's going to get real nerdy, between like Jean-Luc Picard and, and, and Kirk in the sense in that like uh, Picard is really a diplomat, he's very straight-laced, it's all very, in a certain sense, official. And with Kirk, it's a bit more like you're trying to make a connection, you're trying to understand where that person's coming from and their perspective. And I, and I think that that's true of Dave as well. That that's more what Dave is trying to do. It's a networking that's a... Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. Networking is not something I ever yeah. thought that I would have any skills at. Just think of it as making contact In, with different alien races. Right. Does that help? That, that does help, actually. <laughs> you know, that, does, that might help me in the future. But, I mean, it's true. Like, when I, what I've realised, my journey, if you like, is that networking can just be talking to other human beings sure. and relating yeah. to them and getting on with them, and that's what... That's what anyone ever wants. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you if you can't find, you know, it's okay to sit at the side of the room because the person who's sitting at the side of the room with you is a human being yeah, too, and yeah, yeah. they might be really interesting because that's why they're too scared to go and talk yeah. to other people. Yep. This is how I feel at conferences too. Right. Um, so yeah, like so. The, I guess that brings us on to the second question, which is, what do you do now? Which you've yeah. kind of got up to a little bit in the history bit earlier Ever so on. So slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I. Yesterday, in transition from being a PhD student to fully being a, uh, a teaching fellow. And so mostly what I do is, is teach at a university. And, you know, there's some research component as well, but it's a lot of uh, shaping and directing young minds, which is great because, like, er, at, when we first did the GBA, I think if you'd asked me, do you have any interest in teaching, I would have said, well, you know, based on what my parents did, like, I don't think I have that kind of capability. And um, I think it was actually through stand-up tragedy and, and my friend and Dave's partner, Jen, going like, oh no, I think, like, I'd, I'd be quite happy for you to tell me anything about history and essentially, like, give me little lectures. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is a thing that I have some capability with. And then through doing various bits of teaching, I, I actually am, am quite passionate about it um, at this level because it's much more getting people to think about what they think, in, right. a, in a sense. It's, it's getting them to get their ideas and their thoughts in an order and getting trying to expose them to new ideas and new thoughts. But it, it's, it's about essentially teaching them the process of creation and learning, which is, is, is something that I really, really enjoy. So I'm quite glad that that's the direction that things have, have taken, but it would, it would have been by no means what I would have ever said I would have done in my life. When I was little, I wanted to be a paleontologist, still do. Then I wanted to be bones, I wanted to be a doctor in space, still kind of am interested in that diagnostic stuff. 
and then I wanted to be Leo from the West Wing, and, but like politics and I have not always meshed. But I think this was never a course, and I think having lived my, all my childhood with two academics, it was never a course that I would have chosen for myself. Uh, some of my parents' colleagues said, why did you resist for so long doing a PhD? And I think it was, you know, it, 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 it's just like the imposter syndrome that you have, artists have, that we have, like, am I good enough? Is this the right fit? I, I still have that every day. I have that. I submitted my thesis yesterday, and I said to myself, "Is this good enough?" Well, it's it's good enough. Yeah, it's, it'll be good. It'll 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 but get I'm, the job I'm done. I'm pretty sure it'll be <laughs> even better than just a getting the job done situation. But I don't expect you to comment on that, particularly not in this moment yeah. when you don't know the reaction that they're going to have to it. Um, and speaking of, of which, we're recording uh, at the university where you uh, work in a room with uh, a lot of um, air being blown it's outside the, the window. central units for heating and cooling, I think. So background sound fans, that's what you're hearing in the background. It's a beautiful thing about London universities that I really like in, in a way that you don't quite get with North American universities because... They're cobbled together from pieces of other buildings, and they're very hodgepodge, but it means you get weird rooms like this, and weird rooms like my office where there's... I, I have a window, and that's really nice and a bonus, but it doesn't go outside. It goes into an atrium, because that used to be a separate building, but now they're not. They're the same building. Right, absolutely. But it is a great but weird consequence of London universities. <laughs> yeah, right. London universities are weird. I, I, the, the funniest thing I found, and I found it when we went to, you invited me to a radical history mm-hmm. conference uh, close to here, and uh, I, I just, that was the day I discovered that all of the London universities are right next to each yeah, other, right. and it's really confusing because you can think you're going into SOAS, but you're going to UCL or whatever. Which and, is a uh, funny thing because we, it, I've actually encountered this a bit with the end bit of my PhD and, and a complex regulation about it that I won't go into, but... We were all the University of London. I think we were, uh, don't quote me on this, but we were all separate colleges that were absorbed by the University of London. And so technically we're still the University of London, but we're all separate colleges within that who have you know, degree awarding bodies, but it means that we're all interlinked in these weird ways, even though we're so specialized and so separated in terms of our administration, et cetera, et cetera. But as a whole, we're still considered the University of London and right. we're all like falling on top of each other for space. Right, well, very appropriate for London, but yeah. uh, it's universities to be desperate to find space and uh, room uh, against and com- c- competing against yeah. each other. Right. I do always think that's quite an interesting feature of London that you've got like the government in Westminster and then you've got the city in London and then somewhere in the nether regions or in the in-between <laughs> regions are the universities for right. the most part. I like the nether regions. Let's, yeah. I'm going to continue to think of that as the place where the universities are. <laughs> so when did Star Trek first come into your life? Oh, well, probably about as early as I can remember being cognizant of those kind of, of, of TV, really beyond like cartoons. My, my father, at least, was hugely, hugely into science fiction and uh, had watched the original Star Trek series, and that was such a big deal in the 60s. It was so innovative, and he was a teenager, and, and it, it was a, a key moment for him. And then the whole next generation, I think, was a lot of people who'd watched it when they were younger, watching it as adults and introducing their children to it. And so I grew up on that, and it was a fundamental component of 
of my thinking about a lot of things. Like, I cried my eyes out when Gene Roddenberry died. I cried my eyes out when um, Star Trek The Next Generation ended. Dad drove me to multiple Star Trek. Like, I've been to uh, conferences, Star Trek uh, conferences. Um, Conventions. Conventions is the word I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> we, we once drove all the way to Toronto for one, and uh, I used to dress up. I had all the different uniforms. I, I still have one. Who I'm did you dress up as? Picard, really. Like, I had the red uniform, and then one of my friends made me a, a yellow uniform at one point. But, and then since then, I've gone old school, back to uh, back old to Star Trek, back to the original. I mean, I was into Next Generation when it came out, and Deep Space Nine and Voyager yeah. I watched quite a lot of. I don't think it's, it hasn't had, and I've, and I've watched the original series yeah. uh, and the films, um, and the new films, yeah, uh, but at the same time, well, I like the new films. Quite I have complicated feelings about the new films. Fair enough. But, but for me, it's, it's interesting as well that, like, okay, I grew up on the next generation, and that's, that's the thing. So this was in the days, boys and girls, before the internets. So what you had was you had VHS. There wasn't even DVD. So I remember this experience of like finding at a shop a VHS of Star Trek or like them showing it on TV in a marathon and you were like, I must watch all of this. So in some ways it was this great thing and, and this was also true with um, Doctor Who a little bit, the, the prisoner dad was really into, I didn't really get into, the Twilight Zone, that when they'd show up, you sort of went into this binge of it and so it became this quite nice treat or this different world that you really were interested in but you didn't have regular access to right interesting and and now of course it's it's all online it's all easily accessible but for me it was all part of the the specialness of what, getting access to it. what is it about star trek that really connects with you I think it goes back to my my entire worldview of doing social policy and caring about the welfare state i mean it's it's a world in which the idea of equality is very prominent. They care a lot about it. They care a lot about social justice. They're all looking out for each other. It, okay, the military is in charge in a certain sense, but like, some would argue there's also the diplomatic corps that's in charge right. and the science. But like, it's the idea of everyone is part of this and everyone should be part of this and we should all be making these decisions together and we should all be trying to explore the world further and trying to gain as much knowledge and understanding as, as we can. And it was just a very... And, the, and then there's the fundamental things that I like of, about it being Western. I do love a Western. It's a space Western. Right. So people say it's a space opera. I can see that, but I like this, the Western elements of it. And then the idea of it being a different world. And to be fair, Gene Roddenberry wasn't that far off with a lot of the world because, honestly, a lot of those things have become technology we have now. But, like, you know... Anything that has a different world and it is quite appealing to me. It's just interesting to see the way different people depict those things and what they think of as their fantasy and what kind of world they would live in if, if they had the choice. Right. That makes a lot of sense, actually. You can see how that would have... And, you know, like, what, was, that, was that something that people knew about you at school, that you were interested in Star Trek and paleontology and all of these oh. kind of... Things that might be called geeky pursuits, let's say. Uh, I think so. Um, <laughs> cer- certainly with my close friends, but yeah, I think so. And, and now, like, it's become a re-badge of honor, actually. Uh, the amount of dinosaur gifts I get, my friends, it is, it is a lot. I'm not objecting. I really <laughs> like dinosaur gifts, but this keep thing... Keep the dinosaurs coming. Keep the dinosaurs coming. <laughs> yeah, I think people knew that about me. I had a very different experience than a lot of people. I wasn't as 
focused on what was happening in terms of the socialization, the complexity that people get either in films or people will talk about growing up in the States and like clickishness and like jocks versus nerds. It just wasn't a part of my consciousness in the same way. So if someone thought I was a nerd, uh, their problem really. And within the family unit, which is what mattered the most, and within my friends, it certainly didn't matter. And like, if people could make it a nicer thing by like making me a funny Star Trek shirt, like that's a thing. And like, I think that still underlies. Like, I think a lot of my friends would think I'm quite a nerd, but yeah. they're going to support that in all ways possible because we're all nerds at the end of the day in our own things. Right. I mean, but it's like. All of your interests as well, though, they're kind of classically coded by society mm. to be kind of boys Nerdy, as yeah, well. Yeah. Like, it's not just about, like, like, like in some ways, mm. I think some women or young girls at certain points have had a little bit of shielding because mm. they're... Exp- no one pays attention to the fact that they're into nerdy things because yeah. that kind of doesn't compute in their head in, in what they should do. So, they, like, if you're going to bully someone, you're probably going to be bullying yeah. the boys who are, like, explicitly, noticeably into Star Trek or whatever, yeah. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I never grew up in America. I don't yeah. know what it's like. I know what it's like being bullied in this country, but uh, I, I, I wasn't bullied because I was into Star Trek. I, think I didn't know that. It was also <laughs> such, like, an international community as well because it was a university community. I don't... I don't know, like, high school's different, high school's always coded differently, but, like, growing up otherwise, like, so many people coming from so many different traditions, if you were to, like, knock down that one tradition, like, all right, like, there is no way to standardize it. So I think that might have helped. But again, as I say, it's my experience. I know lots of other people growing up, particularly in our schools, who are friends of mine, had a much harder time. But for me, I don't really think of any of that as particularly negative and... I don't know. I was definitely into all those nerdy things because of the parents, really. Like, Dad got me reading Edgar Rice Burroughs at an early age. Uh, I also was really into Rogers Lasney, all that classic sci-fi kind of stuff. And then my mother loved disaster films. Like, her favorite film, Die Hard. My favorite film? film, Jaws. It's just like, I am coded... I think... It has a lot to do with how the gender dynamics or how other aspects existed in their relationship. So, you know, their interests were what their interests were. And, and there wasn't a sort of right or wrong choice, and there wasn't a right or wrong choice for us, but I definitely played with dinosaurs versus Star Trek figures growing up. <laughs> um, there were dolls in the house. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think my sister had some dolls, and she had sort of more things that might be coded for girls, but she also had things that weren't. Like, it just was sort of like whatever. My father also had a tendency to be, he had a very collector tendency, and I think this has a lot to do with being a historian. So if you were interested in a thing, suddenly you got everything of that thing. Everything of that thing. So, like, I, I don't know if it just exists broadly, but, like, my mother, for example, had an elephant collection. So every year, new elephants were added to the collection. Family members would find out you're into this thing, and then you'd get a lot of it. Dad would really encourage it. So like you'd end up with a lot of something, regardless of whether you might in the long term have been interested in it, but you were very interested in it for a short period of time. Right. And that was supported sometimes almost to a manic level. Right. And you, so your dad was a historian, mm-hmm. and your mum, was, was she a scientist? She was a, an economist, but economist, she, she did right. a lot of like economic history and women's labor force participation stuff, and dad did intellectual history. 
um, and a lot of stuff on, on race and, and religion. It's hard to, hard to understand why you ended up in the social sciences. Yeah, yeah. Some, <laughs> some weird connection. I mean, I don't know yeah, what, yeah. yeah. It's, I can't see any, any clues. No Nature, nurture, no, no evidence that there's any, any no, uh, no. thing to expect. <laughs> and my sister does public administration, so. Yeah. Right. Or did public administration. Um, so, yeah, well, all quite close in, I guess. Right. And we sort of like, in our, in our first conversation, we covered uh, the fact that your mum uh, died when you were a teen, right? Or mm-hmm. maybe even a bit 17, younger. Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. older. Okay, so 17. And so that had a, a big effect mm-hmm. on you. And we kind of went into a lot of that yeah, yeah. in that conversation. Well, not necessarily even a lot of it, because it was... Especially when, especially then, back then, like I, I would save the big topics for quite late in the conversation because I didn't want to like front load things with like yeah. complicated stuff. And then, like when when I did get to it, it'd be like, we have we, we haven't got that much time yeah. to talk yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, but yeah. at the same time, uh, we did touch on it and yeah, covered yeah. it well, I think. Yeah. Um, and, but I mean, I, yeah, I guess that was part of the reason you weren't that interested in the clique side of school. Mm, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I, I had rather a lot of other caring to be doing. And we were very, I think I talked about this in the first GBA, very inward focusing as a family. Family was very important and protecting, in a certain sense, the family and right. the family unit. Because it was a, a slow deterioration situation. Well, it, was it, it also, it, so at, by a certain point it was. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's MS in, in, right. in, the, in the 80s and 90s, right? So now we've pretty much got a cure, it's the new science, and like certainly got much better treatments. So like, this is early days of the disease, and this is the more progressive varietal. So what you had was a deterioration, but also like it's a subtle deterioration. So with relapsing and remitting, you have episodes, and then sometimes you get better, and sometimes you don't get better anymore. But with right. this kind of thing, it's, 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 it is, yeah, a slow deterioration, sure. but to the point where like... Till the day my mother went in the hospital, she was teaching. And then she went in the hospital and they dealt with the new changes in the condition and thought, you know, she's going to be released. She was there for two months and then uh, hospitals are not great places to be. You shouldn't be in them too long. And so she got complications for being in the hospital and that's inevitably what led to her death. Yeah, I mean, that's the complicated thing about hospitals. You've got to go there because that's where the doctors are, but that's also where all the germs are and the diseases and... You know, and uh, one of the reasons I think I was quite interested in diagnostic medicine is it's a bit shit. It's very difficult to get right, and it requires a lot of skills that not all. I mean, doctors, GPs are trained in a good amount of it, but not to the detail you need for more complex. Why you have specialists, right. specialists who know how to do that kind of thing, but in order to get real good diagnostics done. And to be very preventative, it requires a different skill set, which isn't always available everywhere. Right, and I guess that's interesting. That's another reason why Bones is is someone you relate to strongly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that connection before. (laughs) It's funny how our lives are so... You find all these connections. They're probably all bullshit, to be honest. They're they're just one thing. We construct our world for ourselves. We make the story. So that happened at 17... Mm. Um, you then went off to Ithaca like Odysseus. Like Odysseus? Well, he went back to Ithaca, you went off to Ithaca. Went off, yeah. And, you know, as we touched on in the first conversation, uh, that was around the point when I realised that uh, 
Oh, actually, maybe we didn't touch on it. Did we touch on it or not? I didn't no, because you wanted to touch on it here. Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe <laughs> people can listen back and, and work out whether I did or not. But what I definitely found out after talking to Liz the first time round is that uh, Ivy League universities are basically the Oxford and Cambridge of of America. I mean, that's a simplification. Nothing's the same. Yeah. It's, it's an analogy, but certainly. Normally on this show, if I find myself talking to someone from Oxford and Cambridge, I sort of like uh, discuss the privilege that that invests on them as as individuals, not in a non-judgmental as in as in as non-judgmental a way as it is possible to be. Um, which is not to say, I mean, I went to Lancaster University. Sure. That's not uh, an unprivileged position to be in. They're like they're like in the five, whatever, whatever of something or other. Like they're, they're, they're up there. I'm not suggesting that I'm massively less privileged than someone who went to Oxford and Cambridge. I'm still much more privileged than anyone who didn't go to the university. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, Oxford and Cambridge are like the green stamp, generally speaking. Yeah. There are exceptions. Yeah. And that's the case for the Ivy League, right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, Cornell is, of course, a different beast in a certain sense because it's half what we call public and half what we call private. So Ivy League universities are normally, they're considered private universities. So public universities would be Michigan State, U of M. They tend to be cheaper. Their tuition is maybe more in line now with the current tuition here in the UK. So it tends to be more subsidized, whereas private universities, you're paying a premium to go there. And one of the ideas of it is that you're much like Oxford and Cambridge being inducted into a society of people that's good for networking. Right. On the other hand, the other thing is they are massively well-endowed research institutions. So the quality of teaching that you get can be quite high. But that's not true across the board. Lots of public universities are also massively good research institutions. So you get this interesting mix in the U.S. between, like, uh, Berkeley, the University of California, um, the, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, U of M as well. They're public universities, but they're such good research institutions that that ends up being its own kind of shibboleth in the same way that, like, you going to a private institution and getting into that kind of a club is its own shibboleth. What my father would say in both of these cases is, as an undergraduate, what are you getting access to? Are you actually getting access to the top people who are doing research in the field, or, or what are you getting away from this? And I think one of the benefits of Cornell was you were getting access to the top people in the field. And there were a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds because it was public and private. You had very active work-study programs. I had friends who paid their entire way, were from very poor families. I had friends who their families had lots of money and paid for it. I had lots of friends who were a mix. And I wasn't involved in the Greek system, and of course that is a different kettle of fish, which I won't get into. But <laughs> like that has its own privileges and complexities, and that's fraternities, that's right? fraternities, and, and sororities. Yeah, and various secret societies are, are related to that. But like, of course, there's hazing and complexity within that. And again, it's not my story to tell. It's not your story, but why did you choose not to get involved in that? Um, I was always much more interested in theater and the arts. And I lived in an arts, like a program house that was just geared towards that and it was all like-minded people. All my good friends, a lot of my good friends are from that or from sort of spiraling out from that. And it was people who were just more interested in that kind of thing and that's the community I wanted and was interested in. And it just, Greek life wasn't 
like, I think my uncle might have been in a frat, but like, it wasn't a thing that was in the family consciousness, for sure. So it never occurred to me, and I actually got asked to pledge a co-ed frat. There's like a chemistry frat and a physics flat, and this was kind of a science-y, a nerdy frat, essentially. And I had a lot of good friends in it, and I was like, I made the decision to say, no, I don't want to partake in this system. I don't think this system is a thing that I would really like to continue. Yeah, no, sure. I, I'm, I'm all in agreement with that, and I, I, I can't really imagine you in a fraternity, yeah. which is good, because I... I'm not saying, I'm sure there's some people who've had in fraternities who I would get on this show and yeah. I totally understand them and see that they're human beings. But What did Groucho um, Marx say? I've never belonged to any club that would have me. <laughs> right, right. That's about right. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't like the idea of that. That kind of exclusion is really problematic for me and certainly uh, I've dedicated a lot of my time and thinking to thinking about inclusivity in, in education and everybody's ability to access it and the power of education. And I think had I engaged in that kind of thing, it would have been really against a lot of my character. Right. And so I think, yes, one must take one's privilege into account. And I really strongly believe in widening participation programs for this kind of purpose. Like, not everybody grew up in an academic household. Not everybody grew up with parents who went to university. I have a colleague who is the first to go to university and is doing her PhD. Right. And that's exceptional, and it shouldn't be exceptional. I mean, she is an exceptional person, but that shouldn't be the exception. It should be, you know, everyone should have the opportunity to take on as much education as is useful to them, as much training as is useful to them. And there shouldn't be a hard barrier for anybody to move in or move out to it. And there shouldn't be an expectation as well that everybody needs the same kind of education. So that's, I guess, my opinion on that. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're exactly the kind of person who I want to be moving into the areas of uh, social policy because you're kind of a utopian idealist in lots of ways, but with a certain kind of practical, pragmatic attitude as well, which I, both of which I approve of. <laughs> uh, I, 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 uh, um, I, I could also be described as all of those things, yeah, I think. I think so um, too. And, like, how does that conflict work for you, though, in terms of how... I, mean, I don't know. Like, I know that, like, one of those things that you did at Stand Up Tragedy was kind of crying, uh, like, when you saw... Uh, Ken Loach's uh, Spirit of 45 and how what the welfare state could have been yeah. and how it's not anymore that. Well, I, mean, I think that's an important bit of it, right? Like, one must, and I do, examine the world you're in and say, how can we make this better? How are we making this better for everybody, not just us? And you have to have a sort of sense of... I don't think it should consume you, like a sense of like all is lost, we're all hopeless, but like you should always be striving to think about what we can be doing better and what we can achieve better and so how do you do that well that's where the practical aspects come in what are ways means mechanisms we can do to achieve those goals and I think for me it's always a constant where are we trying to get to how can we get there where are we trying to get to how can we get there and that constant reflection which I try to get in my students as well what are the goals we're trying to achieve what are the ways we're trying to do it and I think you have to go real big and think about what's your perfect scenario and think about what are the steps you take to get there because if you don't, okay, you've achieved that goal, now what? Right. How do we move forward as a society, as a species, as a world if we're not constantly thinking how we can 
be better how we can optimize it, how we can take on best practice. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated time for that, though. Like, I find the, the frustrating thing is I can think of loads of cool and interesting and, and innovative and exciting ways we could go. I just can't see how we can get to any of those places, even in small incremental steps. Like, yeah. That's the tricky thing. But I guess, like, like, you came to the UK because of that shining beacon of the welfare state. <clears throat> and you've been through the process in this country of realising yeah. that the country's not quite what you had, had hoped it was when you kind of came. I mean, it was always sort of strange to me to hear that you came here because mm. of how good our welfare state is. Having grown up thinking that the welfare state is nowhere near as good as it should be mm. and uh, seeing how, you know... I mean, I was born in 1981, so... I mean, Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair, um, none of these are good examples yeah. of, of, of politics. And, and now is even worse than then. Like, these days, people are nostalgic for those good old days of Thatcher compared to fucking Theresa May. Uh, excuse my French. <laughs> I well, mean, it's not French, actually. No, it's not French. <laughs> um, it's complicated, right? Because what do you see as a model to go by um, in the modern times. And I've had this discussion with a lot of people, what, what is best practice? The, the answer may be that everybody has had to be compromised in some way to some degree for various factors. I, my students talk about the retrenchment of the welfare state, and then they think about what were the key challenges that led to that and the reforms that then came about. So this is like an essay question they have to do. In that, has everybody had to do that? Just the US, the UK, has Sweden, uh, South Africa, have we all had to make these changes because of maybe powers beyond our control, social, economic, ideological? Environmental. Environmental, certainly. And okay, everybody's had to make compromises and make changes and maybe there is no gold standard of a welfare state, but maybe each welfare state has a thing that they do really well and one must endeavor to learn from those in order to make the best possible solution so you're basically suggesting that the way forward is star trek right yeah the way forward is totally star trek <laughs> we, we all learn from our different perspectives and come together to crew a spaceship yep. uh, which infinite diversity we'll pretty much have to yep. do that yep. by the time we get our shit together if we do ever get our shit together at this at this stage we need to fly off in an air, an airplane a spaceship Broadmere was right global governance this is yeah best practice <laughs> I mean it's a complicated one that isn't it like I feel like now the globalization box is open mm -hmm. we can only move forward collectively with some kind of global uh, connectivity and the internet allows us to do that sure. but uh, initially globalization was absolutely part of the problem as well as part of the solution I think in that global capitalism uh, is worse than local capitalism it turns out um, in my view but definitely I, th I think you know the days of going at being anti-globalization that's almost that's, an, that's no longer a relevant conversation I feel like whatever you could think about the, the project of globalization at this point it's here yeah. how can we make it stop causing so many people yeah. to die and have terrible labor conditions etc and you know save the world environmentally yeah. in some ways 
it's exactly. simple, yeah, simple yeah, stuff, yeah, 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 yeah. easy, easy achievable goals. But it also means like, I mean, Lord knows, the U.S. has had a complex position in the world and the U.K. before it in terms of desiring to make the world into the image it has. So uh, whether that's imperialism or a vision of whatever you call the American imperialism, just imperialism, they're both imperialism. Um, <laughs> uh, no matter how how you think about that, uh, there is a good aspect to it in this idea of we are all responsible for each other. And in the same ways that I believe in socialism in that sense and the idea that we're all collectively responsible for right. each other, in a globalized world where, you know, hopefully we're not just exploiting some people so that other people can live well. In a globalized world, we actually care about everybody because we are all people or because we are all creatures on this planet. Hopefully, that is a benefit of globalization. Thinking about things like world development goals and thinking about how we can tackle poverty, albeit a lot of these things are consequential because of actions that have been done by other countries to other countries. But thinking about how we can deal with that now that we've globalization has become more normative, I think is an important benefit as well. Like, so there's negatives and there's benefits. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. But it's got to be a two-way, or a, not even a two-way process, a multi-way process. Because like you say, uh, there may be strengths in the American, uh, in certain American views. I, I like in parts, like, there's things I admire about the Constitution, yep. as well as things I abhor For about sure. it. And, you know, these days Hamilton makes us all experts in, in, in the, uh, the founding father oh, that's right. You're very of, uh, that. of America. I, I have yet to see that. I never knew I'd get into uh, yeah, old school American politics, but uh, <laughs> bring in some hip hop tunes and I'm there. But the founding myths, founding myths are great. Myths in general are a good thing. Well, myths are good. Yeah. But the problem is when those myths are you co-opted into other. Sure. Ones. So a lot of founding myths are great, but they're also the, the reason why imperialism often happens. For sure. For sure. Uh, and you know, your country's founding myths are some of the biggest uh, glossing over of terrible atrocities that exists in the current uh, world, I would say, as much as I, I like uh, the way that they worked out for, uh, potentially for white people, uh, mm. they weren't the ones who were there originally and there were some other ex extra bits that came with that that were pretty horrific. Mm. And I say that as being someone from the UK, so please understand, yeah. we're just as bad if not worse. We have a terrible history of colonialism. Uh, you know, when people look at France and go how terrible France is now, yes, and so are we. Like, the UK is terrible. This, we're not responsible for it, Liz. Uh, we just benefit from it, but we're, we're not responsible for it. But I think, I don't know, like globally speaking, I think the problem is if those conversations are people saying, do it my way, that's mm. never going to work. It needs to be everyone sat around a table and listening to each other. Hopefully it'll be a better world and you'll shape its policy. Star Trek! <laughs> I guess it's, like, it's around the time in the conversation that I traditionally turn to slightly more difficult topics, and I guess that's where I'm going. You don't want to talk about mythology first? <laughs> oh, I like mythology. In terms of relation to founding uh, myths though I don't, I don't so it's a hard it's a hard jumping off point to get into mythology but if you wanted to, what would you like to say about <laughs> mythology myths? I don't quite know how to turn the conversation in that direction I mean we both like myths yeah we do, we do. Uh, that's a commonality that we have yep. Yep. Uh, 
you know, maybe globally we could all get together and swap myths and that might be the start. Um, I just, I don't know, I mean, this is a complete non sequitur, I guess. That's how you say that, right? Um, could be. Uh, I don't, I try not to say it because I say it wrong. Well, there you go. Um, I do love Odysseus and those myths, but I was just, I had this experience and it's been particularly prevalent over the last oh, a few months where I just do love being told a story. And it's one of the things I really liked about stand-up tragedy, and I just love being told myths or being told origin stories or seeing how different cultures reproduce themselves in that sense. And yes, they can be used for very negative, very, very negative purposes, but it's also very interesting the way different identities are constructed through, through storytelling and, and that kind of thing. And I just do love being... My dad used to read to us all the time growing up, and... If you really want to make me happy, just just sit down and read me a story or tell me a story and tell it well. And it just, it's unbelievably soothing, but it's also, it, it's another way of creating commonality because we all do have these sort of, there are a lot of common threads throughout origin right. myths and origin stories. Right. And I think it's another way of like sharing and creating community by understanding the diversity of different stories and getting more aware of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, I mean, I've just come back from uh, Southern Ireland last last week, and when I was there, I was soaking up a little bit of the the local myths and the local histories. Uh, have you ever heard of Grainne Whale? She's like this mean motherfucker. Like in like the same time as uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, she was like in charge. She she was a pirate like queen. In charge of like a load of Ireland, and she like apparently like she ne- she never slept like in she never slept in the same place twice because she was always on the run all of her kind of like time, uh, and eventually they they locked her in a tower in Ireland, and she insisted on a, on um, having meeting Queen Elizabeth, having a uh, a kind of sit down with Queen mm. Elizabeth, and they took her to it, and apparently she sat down with Queen Elizabeth and said, "Look, you need me." Uh, you need me Amazing. over there, let me out. And then Queen Elizabeth kind of let her out. So there's kind of like a kind of... Th- why have I not heard that story before? Know. That's like There's so many good stories about women that are not told. Well, like, and that's one of the things, like, as storytelling is re-emerging, as a tradition in, in mainstream art space things and something we did with Stand Up Tragedy because of Day's interest in that, those stories of the, of, of the non... Of, of, of the everyday person and of the non-winners, essentially, in right. history are, are becoming more prevalent. And I think also the same is happening in the academic disciplines, right? We're beginning to think the traditional views of things, like the top-down, like there is Queen Elizabeth, there is, you know, Henry VIII, etc. Those aren't just the stories that we're learning anymore. Other people are bringing different views to it and learning more about different people in different times in different situations. And I think in terms of academia and in terms of arts, it's a really interesting time to get all those different stories and different perspectives because everybody looks at history differently because of their experience. The idea of like the Grimm brothers writing down those fairy tales. Right. The idea Which that... Was, uh, they were historians in yeah, many, yeah, many yeah, yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. Like People don't necessarily know that. But to create them. one idea of a story when traditional oral storytelling is all about your individual take on it, your individual spin right. that comes from it. And just this idea that we now have a right and wrong way to do storytelling in a right and wrong way. There, there is one variation on that and there's one variation on history. Yeah, facts and acts are a thing that happens in history, but what influences... There's still people who study the origins of World War I people. 
actively, regularly, because yes, some facts, when the war started, when the war ended, even that's maybe slightly negotiable, but there are some things that are more set and agreed on, but interpretation is a more fluid and flexible thing. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, you're right, yeah, it's, 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 it's very healthy. I mean, there's a lot of unhealthy things about uh, us as a society or the West as a society or whatever we want to call it, the global North as a society. Uh, but the, 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 it is, I agree, a healthy position that we've finally got to this point where we don't see history as canon, where we can start to, to think about the, the margins uh, the, 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 the histories on the margins, the voices on the margins, what, it, what life was actually like for every person involved and not just the winners, yeah. uh, which is great. Yeah. Um, so that's a positive, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess it's only a positive if it really shifts down across all of society, sure. which maybe the internet can help make happen, but we all have to have enough uh, to, to live uh, to be able to absorb the information the, first. The beauty yeah. of things like Twitter is there are more voices. Yes. There are more voices than there ever used to be telling their own stories. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And that's the space I'm, I'm at. But I'm also very aware that telling our stories is really important, but we also need the material needs that, like, that, you, that you worry about in social policy. Sure. We need you know, water, food, houses, all of those things, which... Sure, we've both got those things because we're maybe at the bottom edge of the top tier of privileged people, but we're still at that mm-hmm. in that in that tier for now. Mm-hmm. It's it's all to play for. We can always shift down. <laughs> uh, being at the bottom edge makes it nice and uh, edgy. Life changes quickly. But at the same time, um, for everyone to benefit from this beautiful kind of world of plurality. Uh, we need everyone to be able to live, and we also need a world yep. to live in. in yep, yep. Or, That's the crucial one. I mean, just the other week, and you've been in PhD bubble land, but like, like a third of animals gone by 2020. It's, 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 That's four years. Yeah, it's upsetting and, and difficult, and I mean, extinctions are shocking. I don't, I don't know how better to say that. Right, I mean, you, when you dreamed of being a paleontologist, yeah. you dreamed of like it finding bones from years and years and years and years ago, not yeah. ones that you can remember yeah. existing in your life. That I, don't I think that's anymore. one of the reasons the Jurassic Park, like, well, gripped me for a number of reasons. Like, the idea of bringing something back, something that had been dead, something that had been gone, and finding a way to, to bring that back and right. to get a piece of that again was very appealing. Seeing how the pastor... Or how something that was long gone could be is, is is why that's fascinating. But you do think about that as long gone, not recent gone. That's funny. The, the science fiction story, the uh, TV series that I think has prob- probably had the most resonance with me, certainly as a child, but definitely probably still as an adult, um, was Quantum Leap. Oh yeah, I didn't really know Quantum. No, Leap. but it's funny that you sort of say like, why, why? why Jurassic Park resonated with you and it's like yeah I like Quantum Leap because it's about being able to experience so many different people's experiences but also put right the things that went wrong in the past which has resonance 
with my personal life, yeah. like I would like to go back in time and sort out my family, yeah. um, but also with you know my political views. Sure. There's, there's so many, like, hey, if I could go back and stop the founding yeah. uh, myths of your country happening so harshly on uh, the native people, then I, I, that'd be great, that'd be a good thing. To, but Sam Beckett never went quite that far as to go right back and solve yeah. uh, colonialism and imperialism, sadly. Yeah, and as I've said for stand-up tragedy, there's all kinds of repercussions about going back and right. trying to change the past. Like, Lord knows every TV show has ever talked about that. Because you, like, think, you think you're killing Hitler, but in fact you're destroying yeah. everything. Because everything has a ramification. You might think terrible things have happened to you, and you want to change them, or terrible things have happened to society. And I'm not saying that that is justification for them, but I'm saying that even changing them a little bit it doesn't necessarily have the outcome that you want because you don't know the outcome. I mean, we haven't got time travel, so we, we actually can't do it. And I mean, like, you know, my, my personal mantra is like Lily Tomlin's quote of like, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. And that, that means, you know, you can't change it, so you have to kind of accept it. Um, which is not what I'm saying the uh, Native Americans need to do uh, about their situation. I, I think that there is absolutely reasonable arguments for... Uh, reparations. Reparations. Putting right now yeah. what still is wrong yeah. because of the past. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess let's... I guess let's 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 do the more hard thing. I guess sure. of like we went to Edinburgh last year, right? We went to Edinburgh for our last time. Yeah. We knew that after that you were going to do one show, and then that was you leaving Stand Up Tragedy. To do, well, we, we do never that, yeah. talked about an end, but certainly for for the duration. Yeah, of we the, knew you were stepping away. The end away. game of the PhD. Yep. And when we were in Edinburgh, um, your uh, your dad was not very well. Yeah. Um, not, not, not with what what eventually happened, but it, there was definitely a a moment where you were very worried about your dad yeah. a lot, and you know I was yeah. tr trying to be supportive to that. Um, at the same time, as keeping my head on like running the yeah. show yeah. and yeah. like all of that stuff. But I mean, you know, hopefully my mother instincts uh, kicked in enough to make you feel supported. Yeah. Uh, although that's a bit of a weird thing to say, given some of the context yep. of that uh, yeah. that summer. But anyway, we <laughs> we uh, like that was a great Edinburgh from my point of view and from our friendship's point of view. I feel like I feel like and we came the, together yeah, for the show for everything. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was like a, a great. It's sad, but it was a great end. Yeah. The coda, the, the trio, the three Edinburghs, they had a good arc. I do like a plot arc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We went to a, to a gig that was like everyone in the audience and everyone on the stage was naked. That was quite an interesting experience for us both. <laughs> uh, and a good way but, of But high, highly recommended, actually. Yeah, absolutely. It was a yeah. great gig. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, and so that kind of like, if we were doing a narrative arc... Yeah. Like that would have been like a that would have been like the and this is a weird thing to say I guess but I'm gonna say it, I guess because yeah. I do that sort of thing but it was kind of like the when someone coughs and there's blood on the handkerchief at the beginning of the film and like it seems like it doesn't matter and then later on it's like a yeah premonition of what's to come yeah. and I guess that was that was yeah um, and what Dave is alluding to yes is, <laughs> I was gonna let him talk it out which he did well. Um, was my father getting very, very ill and passing away. 
um, which means that both of my parents have passed away uh, before I turned 33, which in modern times is a bit unusual. But uh, I won't go into details of the illness, but basically what we thought was happening in August was actually the warding signs, as you say, the cough that showed the blood on the handkerchief of a much, much worse situation that probably had been going on since my mother died. And many people have said, you know, the two things are not, inter- are not unrelated. Right. Um, one loses one's partner and then you're never the same. So dad passed away from cancer. That was undiagnosed uh, and took a week of him being very, very ill and two different hospitals for them to actually figure out what was going on to the point where it was exactly a year ago that I went back to the U.S. and uh, we knew that he was ill and in the hospital but we didn't know what was happening. Um, And then a week later they finally figured it out and he passed so fast. Uh, So it was impossibly difficult because it was unexpected. Um, It is a case study and a lot of people in my family are a case study for going to the doctor. I know not everybody has the capability but there's a reason preventative medicine exists and there's a ramification on those around you when you don't utilize it but you can't people make choices and they make choices for lots of reasons but the ramifications of it was that my dad who I loved and who was my world passed away and uh, shocking and sudden and again like my mother uh, was teaching two days before he went into the hospital and much to my credit I was also teaching uh, the day before he went into the hospital so it was a bit of a, a, bit of a thing um, but then that meant because my mother had passed and my father had passed and much of my family has passed that my sister and I were left to do a thing that most people won't do for another 30 years how do you wrap up essentially the, the myths and lives of your parents right and how do you unpackage that and how do you begin to deal so you have the initial loss the shocking surprising loss but then also how do you begin to unpackage everything else because it's they die you have a memorial everybody else mourns you have to box up their lives you have to think about their legacies you have to determine what of their academic or creative work should be archived, should be done into anything. You have yeah. to decide what of their lives you want to retain in your life. And then there are other responsibilities that become yours. Other caretaking responsibilities, other complexities, because suddenly the, the chain of command sort of breaks down. Right. And you become the primary uh, chain of command, which I... Am childless. My sister is childless. We haven't yet had the need to be in that kind of a primarily family role where we are the heads of it. And suddenly we were very quickly the heads of it. We were much more extreme caretakers and much more extreme heads of household than we ever had been. And this is saying a lot given that we spent most of our childhoods being caretakers. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd had practice in some ways, but yeah. uh, 
but you can't really practice for a lot of this, especially because it's very adult stuff this yes. time around, right? It's, yeah. it's worrying about property. It's dealing with the estate. It's stuff, yeah. legal forms mm-hmm. and, yeah. and other people to, that you are now carers for, I guess, yes. or like, you yeah. know, you're in charge of your, is it your... your... My, my dad's mum. Right. My mum's mum had passed the, the year before. So November is apparently a poor time. Actually, it's a poor time, doctors tell me, around the world. Yeah. There's a lot of death there, but that seems to be a bad space for my family in general. But it just meant that the only elder left is my, my dad's mum, who lives on her own and, you know, does a great job of taking care of herself. But, like, at a certain sense, she is nearly 96, and uh, there's more support that you need. Not everybody, I'm not making a blanket statement, but there is more support that's needed. And so you have to find a way for that when one of the people who's primarily doing that is not doing it anymore, and those responsibilities have to be split by people who live across the world. Right, I mean, now, you know, we're in a very similar position in this respect, Mm -hmm. in that you're looking after a 96-year-old, although from a distance, but you're still in that kind of, like, slightly parental, slightly organisational, practical role, and... I'm I'm in that situation with my father. Again, it, organizing that with my siblings, yep. although I have more siblings, so it's both more complicated and easier. Yeah, I think and there's I, a. I must say there is tra- like a complexity with that that we actually got a lot of, which is something that still baffles me to this day. Maybe you can unpack this for me. But people constantly said in the hospital, at the funeral home, even after, are are there more children? And and does he have any sons? Well, well, that's patriarchy for yeah. you right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was just this sort of like... Is there a proper human for me to talk <laughs> to a proper, about this? Is there a proper grown-up? Can I speak to the actual manager? But, you know, but it's I that think, bollocks. But I think there is that. Like, <clears throat> in so many cases, like, there are many siblings. Like, you are one of four in terms of your dad, but five overall. Five altogether. Um, yeah. My grandmother had... had, had my mum's mum had four kids. Uh, yeah. She... Two of them predeceased her, but like there was enough sharing out of responsibilities. But like, it's interesting that like two, which is the reproduction rate, just reproduces society as is, is is still perceived as a bit abnormal. Like, where are the rest of you to share this responsibility? Well, I guess practically that's why people had big families because some of them died, and also because yeah. uh, they needed people to be able to look after them when they got old and sick and all of that stuff. That's why everyone's always saying you have to have kids because otherwise he's going to look after it's you. And I'm like, uh, no one, which is good because I don't really want to be looked after. Thank you very much. I prefer to die on my own. All my forthcoming nieces <laughs> and nephews. Love you, kids. Yeah, that's true too. I have, <laughs> I have got quite a lot of nieces and nephews, having so many siblings. Yeah. Um, but I would never expect any of them to to commit to looking after me in that way. If they're listening, uh, have your lives. Do not do not worry about sure. mine. Yours are going to be fucking harder than mine. So yeah. just worry about yourselves, guys. Jesus. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so it's been like an eventful like time. We we sort of sat down and recorded the. Stand Up Tragedy specials. Yeah. Uh, and then by the time the third one was going out, like, I think y- this had all happened. By the first one going oh, out, Oh, shit, yeah. And, I, and so I, I felt so complicated. Like, I didn't, like, want to tag you in because I didn't want to bother you, but I also didn't want you to not get the credit for mm. doing these great shows. So not that my complications mm. or anything compared to yours in this moment and situation. But, I mean, I was... You know, I was sad that the kind of rejoicingness, I think, that could have happened if those had gone out 
six months earlier yeah. where it had just been like everyone's going yay Liz great shows thank you for recommending me and all of that love that you yeah. deserve to experience you kind of didn't get to I'm not saying this is the worst no, thing in the situation but I mean, that is part of it though it was not the year that I had planned <laughs> right, right, right. Um, like definitely like end the standard tragedy but end it well I had like I, I had a, a good friend who was getting married and then there was going to be this couple of months of transition where I sort of wound down in a certain sense that the, the more active parts of my life and allowed me to spend six months really drilling down living in the world of the PhD and getting it done. Right. And so this year that was sort of going to be my farewell to a lot of things and like thinking about how I'm going to be after the PhD right. was shockingly different. And two things to that. One, life is never what you expect. And two, anyone who's doing a PhD... Life, in, in going back to Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Life comes in in different and unexpected ways. You get married, you have children, people die. And the one thing that it's taught me is you have a lot of people who are there to support you. And PhDs are supposed to be these really lonely things. And academia in general is a lonely thing. And that's why we really collab- try to collaborate a lot to break through because you're mostly sat there thinking on your own. But it's moments like last year, periods like last year, that made me realize how much you rely on others. And I'm not just saying, like, my sister is an amazing force of nature. My, uh, her partner is an amazing force of nature. They were both unbelievable. And it was a two months of hell sorting out all of that. But when I came back to the UK, I had to remake my world again. And it did require leaning on all these people in a way that I never would have expected in my last year or in the PhD. And it meant that it took longer. I had to get an extension because it was difficult to get started again because it just, life doesn't go as you plan. And I wish for so many reasons that last year hadn't happened the way it happened. Right. But there's structure and agency issues involved there that you can't really get around like other human beings make their own decisions right and there are forces at play beyond our ability to control I think it's a very healthy position to get to though to be able to say that like other human beings make their own decisions there's not enough people who come to that conclusion in my in my experience around these things and yeah. if you don't come to that conclusion then you just gain, again it's, you, can't, you can't change the you past can, yeah, you, you can't, can't live it. in regret um, it's actually quite <laughs> if you want to talk about a narrative arc in Edinburgh Dave and I spent a lot of time talking about because I was having all the catharsis because essentially what I was having was two months uh, three months even two, two months of catharsis like working out all of my me stuff before I became the project Right. in a certain sense and we kept talking about why was Dave interested in tragedy and why were we interested in tragedy and this right. idea that, that they have in Star Trek that your pain it makes you who you are right That's the, that kind of came out in yeah. one of the later shows like after we talked about it yeah and I think that that is true more than ever for me my pain is what makes me who I am and the fact that I've been able to go through that not once but twice at two very critical junctures in my life right. and still get to where I am now, wherever that may be, is something of value and something important and that you take on 
the things that have occurred to you, the, the pain that you suffer, and you make it into what you are. And I don't think God knows life is not fair, and Lord knows I'm in a different position than a lot of people, and we've all had our crosses to bear. And so I'm not saying my cross is any better or worse than anybody else's, but, and I have the privilege to be able to say, I can accept my pain and I can use it and be the academic that I hope my parents would want and and take and learn from what they were, even though they're not here to comment on it or be part of it. I can use that. Whereas other people may be in less of a fortunate situation, some of the stuff you're alluding to, but their pain is just pain and they can't, they don't have the ability to reflect and use that pain to drive things forward. Yeah, it's funny. It, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Like sometimes in these really sad moments, and I've had that, uh, we kind of can recognize how lucky we are as much as anything else because we, yeah, we have the space, the luxury to grieve. The, the time, I mean, I'm not saying you had exactly that luxury because you were doing a PhD <laughs> and that is part of what you're saying now. Time. But at the same time, yeah, no, I, I know what you, you mean though. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I've been finding out, not exactly, it's not the same thing, but uh, trying to get uh, mental health services through the NHS, uh, which is still an ongoing project and I don't know if I'll achieve it, but um, every, at every stage when I've been thinking how hard it is, I've been so aware that for so many other people, that difficulty for me as a white middle-class man is if you're not in English as a first language, uh, if, if, you, if you haven't got that uh, loads of cultural things that I've got, uh, it must be so much harder and there's such a bigger barrier yeah. for people who are not like me, who yeah. are less, who are more marginalised in whatever way. It's true. And, and we had this horrible, like as I say, there's the loss and then there's the repercussions with horrible task of dealing with this and dealing with this in a way Neither of us were in the States. I wasn't even in the country. My sister and I live far away. And having to deal with this quickly and brutally painfully for both of us, but like quickly. But we had the privilege, because of unfortunate timing and circumstance, of having the resources to get these things done quickly and painfully. Um, Like a Band-Aid. Right. (laughs) A financially well-invested Band-Aid. Right. Whereas other people don't have that. And, And that's there's so much cost of death just as there's so much cost of birth like people having to pay for their children to be kept in a hospital it's just absurd so there's costs to these life choices put on us by larger structures which it's absurd well I mean in, in America there's a cost to, to sickness too I yep. mean like when you're talking about earlier on how people like and it's good advice go and get yourselves checked out a lot of the thing for many people in America, not your dad necessarily, but for many people in America, the thing that stops them from going and getting that uh, medical uh, assessment is that it's going to cost them loads of money that they don't have. Yep. I mean, and that is likely to be the case in this country in the future, yeah, I, oh I, I fear. And I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of complexity in people's pain and their ability to to deal with it yeah yeah and the difference between like emotional mental physical health and well-being are i think something we're beginning to understand something we're beginning to deal with academically and as practitioners but it's not not well enough understood like when we talk about things like social exclusion we're talking about crossing it's 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 not just poverty it's not just income poverty because it's not so simple 
it's not so simple because there's other boundaries like gender and ethnicity and sexuality and mental health, physical health. The way you learn. Yeah. Like Chronic even, acute. Right. I mean, there's so many things. Like there's extrovert, introvert and all of that stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff like, that I've read of, of late, you know, about how society is kind of structured for extroverts, not introverts. And so that's a whole load of people we're not reaching. I mean, it's a complicated world. And I try to bring this... I don't mean to be too abstract about this. People, people say that I seem abstract when I'm talking about these things or I seem distant when I'm talking about these things. But be, be aware that like both of these... All of the losses I have experienced, I have experienced very deeply. But I have a tendency to turn it more inward and, again, channel it. And one of the things I channel it into is caring about and taking care of my students and getting them to think about all these differences. Yeah. That everybody is carrying with them benefits and constraints. Everyone's carrying privileges and drawbacks. Everyone has this. And so when we think about the creation of a policy or we think about the creation of a world, there is no one person, one ideal type that you're trying to do it for. Everything has to deal with the fact that we're all more complicated than that on all these different spectrums of analysis, all these intersections, to, to borrow from the great Kimberly Crenshaw, like they yeah. do compound and you do need to consider it. So for me, yep, I came from an academic background and I went to very good schools and we were moderately off and I've made lots of good choices and I have the right, though arguably not the ideal, way of dealing with things intellectually to be an academic. But Lord knows it was very close to not happening. And yesterday was a triumph for a lot of people and for myself. And I really can't thank everybody enough, really, for helping me to get to a place that a year ago no one would have expected I wouldn't have gotten to. But you can't plan for life. Can I get your Oscar speech now, potentially? <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> let's hope it's worth everybody's time it's definitely worth everybody's time and I, I mean and I wish I'd been able to be around a little bit more this year to be a part of your support network I hope you do know that during that time if you'd have ever asked I would have come but I, I should probably have been more forthcoming in terms of offering uh, it's, it's very hard and that's one of the other things I would say is that it's impossible. Like, I struggle with being able to tell people, one, what I needed. Yeah. But also now, if someone was like, I have a friend who's got a very difficult situation with a family member, very deep illness and problems, and like, do I know exactly what to say or do? No. 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 Right. And you think, Liz, you should be the perfect case study for what to do. There is no right answer. And there's no right answer on any given day. No, you may right. need, like, we needed people to do physical labor, and then we needed people to get us, bring us food, and bring us beer. And other people need other things. And there is no right or wrong answer. So people were always like, I wish I could have done more. I'm like, you did what you could and what I needed at that moment. And if I didn't know how to ask for it, how would you have known how to give it? Right. And I feel like that's an important thing for people to keep in mind. Just saying that you're there is a good base level, <laughs> is enough. 
because no one knows what there means. And then if someone says there means X, Y, and Z, do that. That's so interesting. And that, that's, that really resonates with my experience of my own like, mental health issues as well. I think like, it really cuts across that really everybody well. Everybody always wants to know. I mean, you've said this to me before. Yeah. I don't know what to do for you. And I'd be like, well, no, <laughs> there isn't a thing. It's so different yeah. every day and all of that stuff. So that's, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting how these things resonate across different areas of our lives. There's no, so what we're basically saying is there's no right or wrong answers. No. Everything's really complicated. <laughs> uh, but keep trying to find an answer and keep striving for it. Let's all get in a spaceship and go uh, and explore the galaxies, uh, but not until we've worked out how to stop destroying this uh, planet, probably. Well, we start to destroy it and start again. That's what I don't. Yeah, I don't want to import that. I don't want us to do it, go out into the no, uh, galaxy and uh, yeah, take our troubles with us. I, I heard think. a really good um, the Crip Crack Club, which is an amazing storytelling a collective night. They did a thing on Kali, and um, I always think Kali, destroyer of worlds, which is of course there are different interpretations, there's different understandings of these. Uh, religious connotations and also people right. who do storytelling may do a different take on him much like anybody else's interpretation of religion which they may or not be from but just the idea of of Shiva and Kali that from destruction comes creation right. is appealing now I'm not saying yeah you're right we shouldn't think about destroying the world and then going forth and hey I'm an in. anarchist right like what it's is true. more uh, Shiva and Kali than being an anarchist but I do think that there is some value in from destruction comes creation, from devastation, from loss, from these things, from great mistakes can come great learning and great new beginnings and great achievements. But it requires reflection. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, at least you, you're someone who reflects all the time, at least. So am I. <laughs> so uh, at least we're getting that part right. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure uh, getting even better acquainted with you. It's weird to like say this and wrap this up because we're we're not kind of we're going to carry on like talking after on. we've we've finished recording. We're going to buy him dinner. I am again a free free dinner free dinner everyone. That's 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 what <laughs> that's what I get from my friends when they do me a favour to come on my podcast. Um, yeah, the last uh, question that I ask everybody is: Do you have anything to plug? Ooh, boy, I don't know. I mean, Dave's doing a ton of stuff. Go, go listen to Dave's stuff. <laughs> the Family Tree. I haven't gotten a chance to do it. You should do that. Uh, Dave's always engaging with issues on social media. Obviously, he's very well abreast of that, so go do that. Hire at, Dave for some things. At Goosefell101 on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, just, I'm going to plug Dave. Um, <laughs> Why don't all my guests do this? <laughs> um, I guess the other thing is, I don't know how to plug it, but I think what I'd say is, think about the idea of community and I plug the concept of community and thinking about what community means to you and what you can do for it whether that means taking care of the elderly members of your community and taking them out to dinner or engaging with them in some way or whether it means your colleagues and you're kind of distant because you think there's a work-life distinction sure but get them a cup of tea or if they're having a bad day buy them some flowers it doesn't hurt but think about what community means to you and think about how we can make our communities better and stronger and more inclusive is what I would plug. Yeah, that's a good one. Buy, buy your, your poor struggling podcasters dinner. That's, that's what we're saying. <laughs> go out and find, never mind the elderly, go out and find your, your poor struggling podcasters. 
But yes, community is a good thing. I have an ambivalent relationship with the concept because I am so ideologically pro-community, but I'm so personally uh, complicated about social interactions. But you but have a very strong community of you and Jen. That's true, and also I, I think, you know, I, I forge community through social media, I forge community through uh, art, uh, uh, and hopefully my work benefits the community, I don't know. Everyone's got a role to play, I like to tell myself uh, to stop myself from feeling guilty about not doing loads of things. And I think that's an important point that links back to some of the other things we've been talking about. Just because I don't necessarily mean physical space, right. and that relies on physical capability and time and money. There's lots of ways of being a community, right. and maybe it does mean through social media, maybe it means dropping someone an email, maybe like you're an introvert, but finding other ways of engaging with community it doesn't, there is no right or wrong, yeah, yeah. but the idea that we are all collectively in this together is, I think, the key thing in how we can make ourselves better together. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Collective unconscious. Absolutely. Let's, let's do it. Let's change this world. <laughs> um, so the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. Hopefully see you sooner rather than later. <laughs> Bye, everyone. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook. www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.